Due to the extreme nature of this program, listeners' discretion is advised. The subject matters may include topics of substance usage, sex, foul language, and references to historical events that may be sensitive to some listeners. Things discussed may not be considered politically correct in this overly sensitive environment. They may not be appropriate for listeners under the age of 13. As well as some listeners, no matter the age, may find things offensive. Again, listener discretion is advised. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to GXO, another episode of Generation Extraordinary, the podcast nobody asked for. Focusing on everything pop culture from the greatest generation ever, Generation X. So if it happened between 1960 and 1999, you darn right we're going to talk about it, like movies, music, TV, and even a bit of history from that year. Who knows, you may just learn something before we're done, and if you're lucky, this old man just may regale you with a story or two. I'm Robert Pop, coming to you from beautiful Podunk, Nebraska. She had no children, only dogs. And if you see her in your dreams, be sure you never, ever scream. Howdy, folks and fellow Americans. This here is William Jefferson Davis Beauregard Everhart. But you know me as Hillbilly Willie. I'm here to tell you that I decided I'm going to run for president. I mean, I can't do any worse than what we've already been dealing with. My campaign is going to be based on one thing, and that's honesty. You may not like what I have to say, but unlike other candidates, I ain't going to beat around the bush, so to speak. Another difference is that I ain't going to be taking no payoffs from no lobbyists or big business. Instead, we're going to fund this campaign through a GoFundMe account. So you can rest assured, I'm not going to cave into some special interest group because of a large donation. Follow me and find out where I stand on the important issues. I'm Hillbilly Willing, you damn right I approve this message. Welcome to this week's episode of GXO, Generation Extraordinary, the podcast nobody asked for. So, this is going to wrap up our look at the horror movies over the 90s. And there's a lot of different um, different history that happened during that decade. So, some good, some bad, some really bad. So, to start out with the top headlines for the 90s, in 1990, East and West Germany are reunited after the collapse of the Soviet Union. 1991, the internet becomes available for unrestricted commercial use. Thank you. Mall of America opens in Minnesota. I've been there, and, and you know, I wasn't that impressed. I really wasn't. Of course, I was there, oh, what was it? Uh, probably 30 years after it opened. 20 years at least. Yeah, probably 20 years. In 1993, Czechoslovakia separates into the Czech Republic and Slovakia. And you can't tell me that they are not creative people over there. 1994, genocide 
and civil war take place in Rwanda, uh, with an estimated 500,000 or more people were killed. That was a tragedy. 1995, the online auction site eBay is founded. 1996, Princess Diana and Charles get divorced. 1997, the first Harry Potter book is published by author J.K. Rowling. I like Harry Potter. I don't care what anybody says. You know, I just, I like that whole, that whole world, that whole series. 1998, the United States has a budget surplus for the first time in 30 years. <laughs> See, that's not, I didn't only just do Monica, but I also did the budget too. Oh, try and blame me for good things too, huh? <laughs> Thank you, Mr. President. And... Speaking of Mr. President, Bill Clinton, he faced impeachment proceedings. In music, I've said this before, and I think I said it last week, that, well, frankly, the music in the 90s, I hate to say it, but compared to the 80s and even the 70s, it was swirling around the bowl and going down the hole. So we had grunge and alternative rock. We had Nirvana. I'm not a big Nirvana fan. Uh, Pearl Jam, not a big Pearl Jam fan. Soundgarden, Sonic Youth, The Pixies, Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilots, Smashing Pumpkins, R.E.M., Beck, and Hole. So two of the most notable people were in this list. Uh, Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love, um, both of them seriously fucked up people. But I still think to this day that Courtney Love had him killed or did it herself. So I just think she's a fucking puke. Pop divas in the 90s. We had Celine Dion. My heart will go on forever. Yep. Uh we had Mariah Carey. God, you know, I mean, y'all know how I feel about Mariah Carey, but we're headed into Mariah Carey music season. And honestly, I have really contemplated just shoving a screwdriver in each of my ears and pushing until I hear it crack. So I don't have to listen to her whiny ass little bitch. God, I cannot stand her. We had Whitney Houston in the 90s. Janet Jackson was doing her thing in the 90s. Tony Braxton. Oh. I dated a girl who looked like Tony Braxton. Oh my God. She was she was absolutely beautiful. She was a great personality. Her dad didn't like me at all. So and I don't know why. I'm fucking absolutely delightful. So there. We had Gloria Stefan. Uh Sade. Sade, uh, however you want to pronounce it, it's spelled S-A-D-E, could be Sadie, don't know, uh, everybody pronounces it different, but I really like her music, we had Madonna, we had Sinead O'Connor, Brandy, and Monica, golden era hip-hop, we had Cypress Hill, Ice Cube, Snoop Dogg, no, don't, don't do that, don't do that ever again, no, don't, no. We had Tupac for a while. We had Wu-Tang Clan, which just does not flow off my tongue well at all. We had Jay-Z, Nas, 
And B.I.G., the notorious big, Biggie Smalls, loved Biggie. If he, uh, Between the two of Tupac or Biggie, I was a Biggie guy. I really was. I really was. We had Busta Rhymes, Public Enemy, Dr. Dre, and the Fugees. We had, oh God, electric dance music, which was absolutely horrifying. Oh God, I hate techno. Fat Boy Slim and Moby. Ugh. Wow. On the crime beat, that decade, top 10, we had, of course, the murders of Tupac and Biggie. That was absolutely horrific. The Oklahoma City bombing, another horrific event. Columbine happened. Tragic. Jeffrey Dahmer. He was captured and we heard about all of the things that we'd never heard about before with a serial killer that yeah Waco happened Selena was murdered by her biggest fan and the president of her fan club uh, World Trade Center bombing in the basement happened Ruby Ridge happened Unabomber Ted Kaczynski he was doing his thing and we cannot end the 90s without the most high-profile unsolved murder case ever in Boulder, Colorado, Jean Benet Ramsey's murder. So, in the bookstore, we had Jurassic Park, High Fidelity, American Psycho, Fight Club, Game of Thrones, Holes, The English Patient, All the Pretty Horses, the Horse Whisperer, and Men Are From Mars, and Women Are From Venus. And I have to throw in the rest of the title that they basically cut out. It's All Others Are From Uranus. <laughs> Just kidding. No, I'm really not. I'm really not. On Broadway, we had Rent. Great. Spamalot. By the way, I was in a production of Spamalot at the Grand Island Little Theater. I got to play four different roles. My most prominent two out of everything was uh, the mayor of Finland. And I got to play Brother Maynard, who had the, uh, the holy hand grenade of Antioch. So that was fun. Assassins, um, Ragtime, The Lion King, Titanic falsettos, Miss Saigon, the Will Rogers Follies, and Ruthless were all on Broadway. Now, for as bad as the music sucked in the 90s, the movie theater gave us some great flicks. And I mean, absolutely modern-day classics. Shawshank Redemption, Forrest Gump, Titanic, The Matrix, uh, we got all of the Disney movies that decade. Lion King, Toy Story, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin. The thriller uh, movie Seven with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. If you've never seen that, you really should. Saving Private Ryan. Um, there was also the Fight Club movie. We were reading about it and then they produced it because that's how good it is. 
Fargo. Yeah, you know, going up to Fargo, eh? Uh, by the way, I don't know if I've ever, if I've ever told you guys, uh, exactly how they came up with Canada. So this could be a visual joke. So you may actually have to actually write this down. So you got a couple of Canadian boys, they're up there in the Providence and they're drinking, you know, that they've been known to drink up there and they're sitting around and go, Hey, you know what? We need to come up with a name for our conglomerate of, uh, Providence's, eh? And the other guy goes, oh, oh, I got it. I got it. Here, write this down. C-A-N-A-D-A. And that's how they got Canada. And if you're not familiar with them always ending everything with A, um, try and find Bob and Doug McKenzie. And uh, that'll give you a really good clue what that's all about. And to finish off the movies, one of my go-to uh, uh, gangster movies, Goodfellas, on TV, Seinfeld, Friends. You know, I watched Friends when it was out, but it's pretty much the same fucking episode over and over and over. I mean, Seinfeld, man, they actually got creative. But Friends, it was just... You could tune in first season, third episode or so, Maybe have, I don't know, a gallstone removed. You haven't seen it for like six months. And you get out of the hospital. You go, oh, I want to watch some friends. Same fucking episode. You didn't miss anything. You did not miss anything. Absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. Uh, Frasier, I just saw where they're going to do a reboot. Um, not, no, 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 I take that back. Not a reboot. They're going to do a continuation of the story. That Frasier... Um, is helping a new on-air personality. That's the way I understand it, anyway. Beverly Hills 90210. Um, that was a serious drama. It really was. And um, I watched that with my with my first wife. We'd watch that every week. Third Rock from the Sun. Saved by the Bell. <laughs> Tim Allen with Home Improvement. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and the most annoying woman out there, Fran Drescher, the nanny. Oh, God, I just... Her, Mariah Carey, um, Tom Jones, the Beatles. Yeah, you know, ugh, yuck. And, of course, we're going to finish out this series for the horror movies um, with the 90s. So when we come back from these words from my fake sponsors... Uh, we're going to jump right in and talk about some some of my favorite 90s horror movies. Hello, ladies. Look at your man. Do you see him as a manly man, a lumberjack type, or a guy who likes to frolic through fields of daisies chasing butterflies? Sadly, too many women would say the latter. But if he stopped using lady-scented body wash and switched to sledgehammer body products for men, he could at least smell like a man's man, and that's a good place to start. Sledgehammer body products, that's how good this shit is. By no one. Coming from GXO Studios, you may think you know this story. Have you ever heard of Candyman? Candyman! If you look in the mirror, 
You say his name five times. In cities everywhere. Candyman. They whisper his name. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. <laughs> Who can take a sunrise? An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. The legend first appeared in 1890. He was attacked, mutilated, and burned to death. Who can take a rainbow? Poor Candyman. <laughs> Helen, a woman died in there. Leave it. Everyone knows he isn't real. That's modern oral folklore. The Candyman. The Candyman. The Candyman can. The Candyman can. The Candyman can, cause he mixes it with love and makes the world taste good. Makes the world taste good. Everyone. Except Helen Lyle. Bernadette! It ain't safe around here. That don't scare too easy. Don't know about Ruthie Jane? They ain't never gonna catch him. Who? Candyman. Who is that? I came for you. Do I know you? Oh, who can take tomorrow? Who can take tomorrow? Dip it in a dream. Dip it in a dream. Separate the sorrow and collect up all the cream. The Candyman. Now, she is about to discover. Helen? Get out! Get out! What's behind the mystery? You sick. What's behind the legend? Listen, he's under the bed! And most terrifying of all, come with me. What's behind the mirror? He's here. Take tomorrow, dip it in a dream, separate the sorrow and collect the ball, the cream, the candy man, the candy man can, the candy man can, cause he mixes it with love and makes the world taste good, makes the world taste candy man, you don't have to believe. Just beware. Starring Virginia Madsen, Vanessa Williams, and Sammy Davis Jr. is The Candyman. This film has not yet been rated. The views and opinions expressed are just that, Rob's views and opinions. He's not always politically correct, and those views may not match up with your own. Please believe me, it is not his intention to offend anyone. Hopefully you find the shows entertaining and informative as well. Please note, Rob is not a professional historian, but he has done a lot of research for this show. With that being said, mistakes happen, but he will do his best to minimize those. Keep in mind, he's just some nut with a microphone. All right, welcome back from that break. We are going to be talking horror movies of the 90s. So, as I've prefaced on each one of the earlier ones, some of these are going to include multi-movie franchises. So, they may have expanded out of this decade, but this is where they started, okay? And again, I could probably speak for an entire month about horror movies and things like that, scary stuff, but I decided I needed to narrow it down to, the, to my top five, my top five. You may or may not agree with my opinions, but, you know, they're, they're my opinions. 
So, let's jump right in. In the 90s, the good were Bram Stoker's Dracula. That is a great movie. By the way, on that one, I believe that where Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder supposedly got married on screen, that they actually got an ordained minister. So there's some urban legend out there that those two are actually married because he actually married him. Bats, that was a that was a scary damn movie. That really was. I don't, maybe that's the reason why I don't like Bats. I don't know. The Blair Witch Project, that was one of my first episodes, and I'm sorry of how rough those were. Um, however, a little story behind that. Uh, my daughter, who I bring up in, on the show quite a bit, actually. Uh, but anyway, we are... It was me, her, one of my many wives, uh, my boys, and we all went up into the mountains when I lived out there in Colorado. And a friend of mine had said, uh, you know, if you ever want to use the cabin when you have the kids out there, you're welcome to it. Okay, great. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I had been to his cabin, a previous cabin, like 10 years earlier, and it was like what you would imagine, like, I don't know, just a, a a mountain home. It was beautiful. It was just absolutely had every amenity. I mean, you had to go out and, and turn on the generator for electricity, but it was, everything was right there. It was so nice. So that's what I had in mind when we went up into the mountains. First off, we're driving up and there are boulders that are big enough that I had to get out and actually tell one of the wives to, how to drive so the car would not high center on some of these. Yeah, I, that was rough. So we get up there, it's getting dusk. Um, it's like the fucking Unabomber shack. And actually, I've seen pictures of Ted Kaczynski's uh, bomber shack. And it was actually, uh, had more stuff than what this did. This was a hunting cabin. It was a hunting cabin. It had planks all the way around for the beds and your chairs there was a table in the middle of the room and there was a stove that was it that was it we haul all of our shit inside my daughter stands at the door and goes huh kind of reminds me of the blair witch project and you know she's the only one that got any fucking sleep that night because of that comment me my ex-wife, my boys, we are all just fucking terrified up there. Every little thing we heard, dear God, it was everything from the Blair Witch that maybe Bigfoot was out there, perhaps a chupacabra, um, you know, the hillbillies from Deliverance. They were all out there. And, man, and of course, there was no bathroom in there. So, of course, we had to go outside. Well, it wasn't going very far, I'll tell you that. It was like right out the window. Um, but yeah, that uh, that just fucked with me. So thank you, daughter. I appreciate that. Misery, Cape Fear, Sleepy Hollow, The Ninth Gate, Stir of Echoes, Arachnophobia, Thinner, The Mummy, and The Craft. Those were all what I considered good movies. I like The Craft. Uh, the bad. <laughs> I know I'm going to hear about some of these because one of these is a is like a a 
staple, actually two of them on here are a st three, a staple for a lot of people. I know what you did last summer. God, I hated that movie. I really did. Jack Frost. Retro Puppet Master. Scream. Oh my God. I hate that fucking franchise. I hate that movie. There's just, to me, nothing endearing about that. Nothing. Well, no, I take that back. There's one thing that's endearing, and that was in the very first one. That was Drew Barrymore. <sighs> so, Dead Alive. Army of Darkness. Probably the worst roles that I've ever seen Jack Nicholson in. Wolf. He becomes a werewolf. I mean, I actually... I. I was able to to see him in the Witches of Eastwick as the devil, but no, I just I didn't buy the whole werewolf thing. And the really bad; these things suck so bad that they should apologize for them. The Willies, Killer Tomatoes, Strike Back, Leprechaun. God, I hate that series. Ice Cream Man, Rumpelstiltskin, oh, Dr. Giggles, sounds like, that sounds like a, like a, a porno Batman villain, Dr. Giggles, the Nostril Picker, <laughs> just, <laughs> the Nostril Picker, hey, what should we call our movie, I don't know. Oh, oh, look over there. There's a key grip. Oh, what the, he's picking his nose. Oh, let's go with that for a name. Nostril picker. Wow. The Dummy. That's a fucked up movie, by the way. And Nothing But Trouble. Starring Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, and John Candy. Please do not even look for this. It was so bad. John Candy plays a dual role in it. Um, both him, where he's a cop, and his twin sister. Dan Aykroyd plays this corrupt judge that is, like, falling apart, has little pieces of him falling off, has a dick for a nose. I'm serious. Peckerhead, right there, for a nose. Chevy Chase. Yeah. I mean, actually, even Fletch 2 was better than this movie for Chevy. Um, yeah, it was not good. It just really was not good. But my top five are Interview with a Vampire, and it's a vampire, not the vampire. And that's one of those Mandela effects. To me, it was always with a vampire. Seven, um, The Sixth Sense, Silence of the Lambs, and Candyman. I hope you guys have heard my, uh, my trailer from uh, GXO Studios that uh, we're redoing the Candyman. Um, Interview with a Vampire focuses on two main characters. Uh, Lassat, who is played by Tom Cruise, not a big fan, but... Louis, or Louis, uh, played by Brad Pitt. I like Brad Pitt. Uh, and it starts with the beginning of Louis's transformation into a vampire in 1791. In modern-day San Francisco, reporter Daniel Malloy 
uh, interviews Lewis, who claims to be a vampire. Lewis describes his human life as a wealthy plantation owner in 1791 Spanish Louisiana. Despondent following the death of his wife and unborn child, he drunkenly wanders the waterfront of New Orleans one night and is attacked by a vampire. Lassat senses Lewis's dissatisfaction with life and offers him to turn him into a vampire. Lewis accepts, but quickly comes to regret it while Lassat is revealing in the hunt and killing of humans. Lewis resists his instinct to kill, instead drinking blood from small animals to sustain himself. Eventually, amid an outbreak of the plague in New Orleans, Lewis feeds on a little girl whose mother died of the plague. To entice Lewis to stay with him, Lathot turns the dying girl Claudia into a vampire. Together, they raise her as a daughter. Lewis has a love for Claudia, while Lathot spoils and treats her more as a pupil, training her to become a merciless killer. Thirty years pass, and Claudia matures psychologically, but remains a little girl in appearance and continues to be treated as such by Lassat. She realizes that she will never grow old or become a mature woman. She is furious with Lassat and tells Louis that they should leave him. She tricks Lassat into drinking the dead blood of twin boys, whom she killed by overdose with laudanum, and that weakens Lassat, and then she slits his throat. Though Lewis is shocked and upset, he helps Claudia dump the body in the swamp. They spend weeks planning a voyage to Europe to search for other vampires, but Lassat returns on the night of their departure. Having survived on the blood of swamp creatures, Lassat attacks them, but Lewis sets him on fire, allowing them to escape to the ship and depart. After traveling around Europe and the Mediterranean but find no other vampires, Louis and Claudia settle in Paris in September of 1870. Louis encounters a vampire Santiago and Armand by chance. Armand invites Louis and Claudia to his coven, where vampire stage theatrical horror shows for humans. On their way out of the theater, Santiago reads Louis's mind and suspects that Louis and Claudia murdered Lassat. Armand warns Louis to send Claudia away for her own safety, but Louis stays with Armand to learn about the meaning of being a vampire. Claudia demands that Louis turn a human woman, Madeline, into a vampire to be her new protector and companion. He reluctantly complies. Shortly thereafter, the Paris vampires abduct the three of them and punish them for Lassat's murder, imprisoning Louis in a coffin and trapping Claudia and Madeline in a chamber where sunlight burns them both to ash. Armand does nothing to prevent this, but the next day he does free Louis. Seeking revenge, Lewis returns to the theater at dawn and sets it on fire, killing all of the vampires, including Santiago. 
Armand arrives in time to help Louis escape the sunrise and again offers him a place by his side. Louis rejects Armand and leaves, unable to accept Armand's way of life, which involved forgetting the past and knowing Armand had allowed Claudia's death. As decades pass, Louis never recovers from the loss of Claudia and dejectedly explores the world alone. He returned to New Orleans in 1988 and one night encounters a decayed, weakened, and recluse Lassat, living in an abandoned mansion and surviving on rat blood as Louis had once done. Lassat expresses regret for having turned Claudia into a vampire and asks Louis to rejoin him, but Louis declines and leaves. Louis concludes his interview with Malloy, prompting Malloy to beseech Louis to make him his new vampire companion. Louis is outraged that Malloy did not understand the tale of his suffering and has related and attacked Malloy to scare him into abandoning the idea. Malloy runs into his car and takes off while playing the cassettes of the interview. On the Golden Gate Bridge, Lestat, Lestat, appears and attacks Malloy, taking control of the car. Revived by Malloy's blood, Lassat offers him the choice that he, quote, never had, whether or not to become a vampire, laughing and continues driving. Seven. I mentioned this earlier, and this has Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman in, and this is a mindfuck movie. It really is. In an unnamed city overcome with violent crime and corruption, a disillusioned police detective, William Somerset, is one week from retiring. He is partnered with David Mills, a short-tempered, idealistic detective who recently relocated to the city with his wife, Tracy. On Monday, Somerset and Mills investigate an obese man who was forced to eat until his stomach burst, killing him. The detectives find the word gluttony written on a wall. Somerset, considering the case too extreme for his last investigation, asks to be reassigned to another case, but denied. The following day, another victim, who has been forced to cut a pound of flesh from his body, the crime scene is marked greed. Clues at the scene lead Somerset and Mills to the sloth victim. Seven deadly sins, people a drug-dealing guy who they find emaciated and restrained to a bed. Photographs reveal the victim was restrained for exactly one year. Somerset surmises the murders are based on, like I just said, seven deadly sins. Tracy invites Somerset to share supper with her and Mills, helping the detectives overcome their mutual hostility. On Friday, Tracy meets privately with Somerset because she has no other acquaintances in the city. She reveals that she is very unhappy at moving there, especially after learning that she is pregnant and believes the city is an unfit place to raise a child. Somerset sympathizes with Tracy, having persuaded his former girlfriend to abort their child for similar reasons and regretting it ever since. He advises Tracy to inform Mills only if she intends to keep the child. A comment by Mills inspires Somerset to research libraries for anyone checking out books based on the seven deadly sins. 
leading the pair to a p- apartment of John Doe. Doe unexpectedly returns home and is pursued by Mills, who is incapacitated after Doe strikes him with a tire iron. Doe momentarily holds Mills at gunpoint but soon flees. The police investigate Doe's apartment, finding a large amount of cash, hundreds of notebooks revealing Doe's psychopathy, and photographs of some of his victims. The cash includes images of Sunset and Mills by a person they believed was an intrusive journalist at the sloth crime scene. Doe calls the apartment and speaks of his admiration for Mills. On Saturday, Somerset and Mills investigate the fourth victim, Lust, a prostitute who had been raped with a custom-made bladed strap-on by a man held at gunpoint. The following day, the pride victim is found. She is a model with whom Doe facially disfigured and died by suicide rather than live without her beauty. As Somerset and Mills return to the police station, Doe arrives and surrenders himself. He threatens to plead insanity at his trial, potentially escaping punishment unless Mills and Somerset escort him to an undisclosed location where they will find the envy and wrath victims. During the drive, Doe says he believes God has chosen him to send a message about the ambiguity of an apathy towards sin. Doe has no remorse for his victims, believing the shocking murders will force society to pay him attention. Doe leads the detectives to a remote location where a delivery van approaches. Somerset intercepts the vehicle, whose driver has instructed to deliver to Mills a package at this specific time. Somerset is horrified at the package's contents and tells Mills to put down his gun. Doe reveals he himself represents envy because he envied Mills's life with Tracy and implies the package contains her severed head. He urges Mills to become wrath, telling him Tracy begged for her life and that of your unborn child, and takes pleasure in realizing Mills was unaware of the pregnancy. Oh, oh, you didn't know. Oh. Despite Somerset's pleas, Mills, distraught and enraged, shoots Doe dead, completing Doe's plan. Police remove the catatonic Mills, and Somerset tells his captain he will be around. Somerset says in a voiceover, Ernest Hemingway once wrote, The world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. The Sixth Sense. I will tell you, this movie, the first time I watched it, this movie was uh, it, it great. 99 and and it was just great because when you got to those last 10 minutes, you're like, what the fuck? I, I, I never even saw it coming. Never saw it coming. So the, the basis of this movie is a Philadelphia-based child psychologist, Malcolm Crowe, played by Bruce Willis, returns home with his wife, Anna, after having been honored for his work. Vincent Gray, a former patient Malcolm had treated for hallucinations, 
breaks into their house and accuses Malcolm of failing him before shooting Malcolm and then himself. Months later, Malcolm begins working with a nine-year-old Cole Sear, a boy who reminds him of Vincent. He feels he must help Cole to rectify his failure to help Vincent and reconcile with Anna, who has become distant and cold lately. Cole's mother, Lynn, played by Toni Collette, I think one of the ugliest women in Hollywood. Oh, yeah, she just looks like a leathery fish. I'm sorry. She just, uh, I know that sounds really judgy, but I just, yeah, I just, I'm not attracted to that woman at all. She worries about his social skills, especially after seeing signs of physical harm. At a birthday party, Cole is cornered by bullies who lock him in a cupboard, causing him to scream in terror before passing out. Following this incident, Cole finally confides to Malcolm that he sees ghosts walking around like the living, but they only see what they want and are unaware that they are dead. Malcolm thinks Cole is delusional and considers dropping his case, but after listening to an audio tape from a session with Vincent, he hears a man tearfully begging for help in Spanish and realizes that the ghosts Cole see are real. He suggests that to Cole that he should try to communicate with the ghost and help them finish their business, to which Cole hes- hesitantly agrees. Cole wakes up one night to discover a ghost girl vomiting. He finds out who she is and goes with Malcolm to the funeral reception at her home. Cole sneaks into the girl's room, where she crawls out from under the bed and gives him a box containing a videotape, which he gives to her father. The tape reveals that the girl's mother was poisoning her food. Alerting her father to this and saving her younger sister from the same fate. Before parting ways with Malcolm, Cole suggests that he try speaking with Anna while she is asleep to better communicate with her. While stuck in traffic, Cole tells his mom his secret that somebody died in an accident down the road. She doesn't believe him, but Cole tells her that his late grandmother visits him and describes how she saw Lynn in a dance performance when she was a child, giving details that there's no way he could have known. Cole's mother finally accepts the fact that her son has a special ability and tearfully embraces him. Malcolm returns home to find Anna talking in her sleep, asking Malcolm why he left her. Much to his confusion, she suddenly drops his wedding ring and notices that it is not on his finger. Recalling what Cole told him about dead people only seeing what they want and not knowing that they're dead, Malcolm finally realizes that he did not survive being shot by Vincent and has been dead while working with Cole. He quickly comes to terms with his death and tells Anna that he loves her. She bids him good night, indicating that now she is at peace and he can move on. With his business finally completed, Malcolm's spirit departs in a flash of light. See, that was just a great movie. That, uh, the, the, the concept of that, I don't ever recall seeing that before. The Silence of the Lamb from 1991. Hello, Clarice. Clarice Starling, an FBI trainee, is pulled from her regime at the Academy at Quantico, 
Virginia by her boss, Jack Crawford. He assigns her to interview the incarcerated Hannibal Lecter, a former psychiatrist and cannibalistic serial killer, on the pretense of persuading Lecter to answer a questionnaire about himself for the Bureau's psychological profiles. But secretly, Crawford hopes to get insights into a psychopathic serial killer they call Buffalo Bill, who kills over weight women and skins them. Oh, wait, was she a great big fat person? Baltimore State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Dr. Frederick Chilton escorts Starling to Lecter's cell. Although initially pleasant and courteous, Lecter grows impatient with the interview and rebuffs her, denouncing Crawford's true motive and refusing to help. As she is leaving, this is always gross, Miggs, flings semen at her as he masturbates, angering Lecter, who calls Starling back and tells her to seek out an old patient of his, yourself. It's a clue that leads to a storage facility with a jar containing a man's severed head. Lecter says the man is linked to Buffalo Bill and offers to profile the killer on the condition that he is transferred away from Chilton whom he detests. Meanwhile, another waterlogged victim is found with a death head moth lodged in her throat. In Tennessee, Buffalo Bill abducts Catherine Martin, the daughter of a U.S. Senator. Crawford authorizes Starling to offer Lecter a fake deal, promising a prison transfer if he provides information that helps them capture Buffalo Bill in time to rescue Catherine. Instead, Lecter demands a quid pro quo from Starling, offering clues in exchange for personal information about herself. She tells Lecter about her father's murder when she was a child. Chilton eavesdrops on their conversation and exposes Starling's deceit to Lecter before offering him a new deal. Lecter agrees and is flown to Memphis, where he meets Senator Martin, giving her accurate information on Buffalo Bill's appearance but falsely identifying him as Lewis Friend. Starling figures out the name is an anagram of iron sulfide, a.k.a. fool's gold. She visits Lecter, now imprisoned in Tennessee, and requests the truth. He says all the information she needs in the Buffalo Bill case file, and he insists that she recounts more of her past. She describes a traumatic childhood incident, hearing spring lambs screaming at the slaughter. Lecter speculates that she hopes that saving Catherine will end the reoccurring nightmares that she has and gain satisfaction from this shared revelation. Lecter returns the case files to Starling as Chilton has the police escort her out. Later that evening, Lecter kills his two guards, escapes his cell, and disappears. Starling goes back over the case file, along with her notes from Lecter, and figures out that Buffalo Bill knew his first victim, Frederica Bimmel. Starling travels to Bimmel's Ohio hometown and discovers that she and Buffalo Bill were both tailors. In Bimmel's room, Starling finds dress patterns identical to the patches of skin that were removed from the victim and phones Crawford to tell him that 
Buffalo Bill is making a suit with human skin. But Crawford is already en route to make an arrest. After cross-referencing Lecter's notes with hospital archives, they found a man named Jane Gum, who believes he is transsexual but was deemed too violent to apply for a sex change operation. Crawford and an FBI hostage rescue team storm Gum's address in Illinois, finding the house is empty. Meanwhile, Starling follows the lead from one of Bimmel's friends, which takes her to to the house of one of their former clients. At the house, she meets Jack Gordon, but realizes that he is Gum after spotting a death head moth flying loose. She pursues him, hand-drawn gun, into a cavernous basement and finds Catherine trapped in a dry well. In a dark room, Gum stalks Starling with night vision goggles, but reveals himself by cocking his revolver. She reacts quickly and shoots Gum dead. At the FBI Academy graduation party, Starling receives a phone call from Lecter, who is in the Bahamas, at a Bimini airport. He assures her that he has no intention of pursuing her and requests that she returns the favor, which she says she cannot. He subsequently hangs up the phone because he is, quote, having an old friend for dinner. He trails a newly arrived Chilton into the crowd. And my top scare the fuck out of me movie Candyman. Helen Lyle is a graduate student at the University of Illinois, Chicago. While researching urban legends, she learns of the Candyman, a spirit who kills anyone that speaks his name five times in front of a mirror. She learns of a recent murder in the public housing projects and two dozen others that have been attributed by locals to the Candyman. Skeptical, Helen and her friend Bernadette Walsh repeat the Candyman's name into Helen's bathroom mirror. Gee, don't do that. Why? 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 Why tempt fate? Why? Uh. Helen and Bernadette work together on a thesis on how these residents use the Candyman legend to cope with hardship and, in- and inequality. She and Bernadette visit the scene of the most recent murder. There, Helen discovers a room where offerings have been left for the Candyman. Afterwards, they interview the victim's neighbor, Anne-Marie McCoy, a single mother raising her infant son, Anthony. Helen and her husband, Trevor, later have dinner with an expert on the Candyman legend. He explains that the Candyman was Daniel Robitaille, an African-American man born in the late 1800s as the son of a slave who grew up to become a well-known painter. After he fell in love with and impregnated a white woman, her father sent a lynch mob after him. The mob cut off his right hand and smeared him with a honeycomb stolen from a beekeeper, attracting bees to sting him to death. His corpse was then burned in a pyre erected on the site where the projects were eventually built. When Helen returns to the projects, a young boy named Jake 
tells her of an incident where a developmentally disabled boy was violently castrated by the Candyman in the public bathroom. She goes there to investigate where a man calling himself the Candyman batters her with a hook. She identifies her attacker to the police who recognize him as the head of a local gang and is therefore charged for the murders attributed to the Candyman. The real Candyman appears to Helen in the parking garage, hypnotizing her. He explains that due to her discredit of his legend, she must shed innocent blood to perpetuate it. Helen blacks out and awakens in Anne-Marie's apartment, covered in blood, finding Anne-Marie's pet Rottweiler, Annie, decapitated, and her son Anthony missing. The police arrive and arrest Helen. See, why you got to bring the dog into it? Why do you have to bring the dog into it? Every time, I'm always more upset with the dogs getting hurt than I ever am with the people. What does that say about me? I, yeah, I got more issues than the Wall Street Journal, people. Just saying. After Trevor bails her out of jail, Helen finds the Candyman in a photograph she took at the projects. He breaks into Helen's apartment and cuts her neck, causing her to bleed and pass out. Bernadette arrives at Helen's apartment, and when Helen comes to, she sees that the Candyman has now murdered Bernadette. Framed for the crime... Helen is committed to a psychiatric hospital. While being interviewed in pre preparation for her trial a month later, Helen attempts to prove her innocence by summoning the Candyman, who appears and murders her psychiatrist. Candyman then frees Helen from her restraints, allowing her to escape. Helen returns to the, her apartment to find Trevor now living with one of his students, Stacy. Helen confronts him, then flees to the projects to rescue Anthony when she finds the Candyman in his lair. He tells Helen that her surrendering to him will ensure Anthony's safety. Offering Helen immortality, the Candyman opens his coat, revealing a ribcage wreathed with bees. The bees pour out of his mouth and stream down her throat as he kisses her. He vanishes with Anthony, and Helen awakes to find a mural of the Candyman and his lover, who bears a striking resemblance to her. The Candyman promises to release Anthony if Helen helps him strike fear into the residence once again. Attempting to feed his legend, the Candyman re-engages and attempts to emulate both Helen and and Anthony in a pyre. The flames destroy the Candyman, and Helen dies while saving Anthony. The residents, led by Anne-Marie and Jake, pay their respects at Helen's funeral. At home, the grief-stricken and guilt-ridden Trevor looks in the mirror and says Helen's names five times. Whereupon, Helen's vengeful spirit appears and kills him. And... A new mural of Helen, dressed in white, with her hair ablaze, appears in the Candyman's lair.
This has been Generation Extraordinary. The views and opinions are mine and mine alone. Any claims of time travel are purely fictitious. The music and audio clips are not mine, and in most cases were downloaded through my paid YouTube subscription and are only used for entertainment purposes. GXO is a production of Popeye Enterprises. Its host, creator, producer, and editor is Robert Pop. Co-producer is Harley Quinn Pop. Special guest voice actresses are Ariel Pop and Rachel Lyons. For more information, support, or to contact us, go to the website at www.genxord.com. Thanks for listening. She had no children, only dogs. And if you see her in your dreams, be sure you never, ever scream.